This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Amazon Cloud Cam. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I did an ad for Amazon Cloud Cam. And other than Jeff Bezos himself sent me an email asking to not talk about some of the images uh, that may or may not involve uh, ring pops and babysitters feeding them to babies like I did two weeks ago. So uh, Bezos, richest man on earth, I'm going to respect his wishes, so I won't talk about ring pops and babysitters and babies. The Amazon Cloud Cam allows you to stay connected 24-7. Catch activities as they happen in 1080p full HD. Watch, download, and share the last 24 hours of motion alert video clips for free. You certainly won't see a nanny feeding a push pop to a toddler. Night vision lets you detect what's happening around the clock, so you can see in the dark when the nanny turned off all the lights and the simple glow of a push pop going in your toddler's mouth illuminates the room. It works with Alexa. Just say, Alexa, please email the lawyers the footage of the nanny giving my freaking toddler a push pop. The cloud cam's intelligence lives in the cloud, so it's always getting smarter with more advanced alerts, detection, and features. Why don't you get smart and fire the dang nanny that's feeding push pops to your toddler? To get your Amazon cloud cam, go to boardwalkaudio.com slash cloud cam. If you're a nanny looking to feed a push pop to a toddler, look elsewhere than this podcast. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. In case you missed last week's episode, we're in the midst of March Madness. That's right. For the four episodes in March, I'm doing the same sketch pitch, <laughs> which is insane. It's absolutely mad. Um... <laughs> Uh, just realizing kind of um, how lame it is to say the words. We're doing March Madness. I'm repeating the same sketch pitch, but hey, I think it's a fun. It's a fun twist on the old format. I think it's a. I think it's kind of a fun little experiment to see uh, what other writers think. So we're we're, we're going to keep doing it. Uh, so our second guest of on comedy writings March Madness is uh, Chelsea Davison. She's a, she's written on At Midnight. She was in the cast of the rebooted Mad TV, and she's currently a writer in the opposition of Jordan Klepper. Make sure to check out our previous episodes with Nick Weiger, Chris Kula, Craig Rowan, and Emmy Blotnick from At Midnight, and our episode with Carl Tart from Mad TV. So here is Chelsea Davison. Uh, Chelsea, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, cool. Yeah. Do you, you say that like you you know it? Uh, I have family there. Oh. Uh, I have a cousin who works at the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, very actually, impressive. I have two cousins, actually. Wow. I think the other one got the job because of the first one. Uh, yeah, it's always nepotism yeah, in right. hospitals. <laughs> um, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. and you do a podcast. And I do a podcast. You guys right? are all killing it. There's an, uh, a brain surgeon, an anesthesiologist, wow. and a podcaster. Oh, they come in threes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was it like growing up there? Uh, it, it was, I mean, it's very nice. It was very suburban. I lived in, uh, several different suburbs around Cleveland. Um, and I mean, yeah, it was, it was a little boring, but, uh, but it was cool. It's actually fun because now when I've gone back now, they have kind of a booming comedy scene for a long time. Oh, really? They didn't. I mean, not that I was like, 
I, I was into comedy in a way that like high schoolers are where like I hosted this performance night every month called um, Coffee House at my school. And so we would do like acts and we'd like make little videos, things like that. But I didn't think about doing comedy for real. So I, I don't even know if, if there really had been a, a like a stand up scene at the time, if I really would have taken advantage of it. But now when I go home for the holidays and stuff, it's cool because I can always do some shows and, oh, yeah. and it's it's pretty neat. Yeah, that is cool. So is it like, do they have like an improv theater there now? Like it was before they Not did it really. There, I think there was a second city in Cleveland like very briefly. Oh, yeah. I think but I uh, no, it, it's more stand-up that oh, okay. has kind of flourished. And there's a little bit of an alt scene. There's a couple really great kind of more alternative comics there, um, which, you know, th- is great. I think yeah. it's it's cool to see some of the like... I don't know, to first have like some of the main street art come and then a little bit more of like the weird stuff come. Yeah. It really, it's cool. Yeah, I asked the improv thing because I feel like there's like in all the major cities now, they're like in the last like five years, 10 years, they've like made improv theaters which has kind of created comedy scenes. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it would work in Cleveland. Cleveland is a lot like a lot of cities in the Midwest, which is, it, they're very sprawling. I mean, not sprawling mm-hmm. in that like there's truly not much there, but like it's like a, it's a, not even a half city, a quarter city, but over, you know, four times, four times the area. So it's oh, like all the suburbs basically are the city. So it'd be hard to concentrate that, but I don't know. It'd be very cool. It would yeah. certainly give bored high schoolers like me a thing to do. <laughs> uh, when did you first get into comedy? Uh, well, like I said, I mean, in high school I did stuff, you know, mm-hmm. for that performance night. I, uh, got suspended over various things, jokes. We had a lot of run-ins with the, uh the administration um when i graduated our headmaster uh like chased after me on the lawn and was like chelsea i just wanted to say i know i know we haven't always seen eye to eye but i hope that we leave on good terms i was like (laughs) what like i'm an 18 year old like what are you talking about like i just did bits and like things that i thought were funny and then you were like that's not funny it's like what good terms we're not like exes like, yeah. so but uh, it was fine um, that's, that's crazy what like if you don't mind me asking what was like something you got suspended for okay so the big thing so i say suspended it was really we were pulled out of class and i we i it was this other girl nicole who ran the the thing with me and so we would do all these things together um so uh, there were a couple things that we got we got pulled out of classes for and then had to do like public apologies <laughs> so it was not, not suspension it was a very like kind of uh, free thinking, you know, private school. So not like detention, more just like you need to really do some soul searching <laughs> and like talk to the people. So a couple of the bits we did was there was a teacher there who named Dr. Colon, who was our geometry Dr. teacher. Dr. Colon? Dr. Colon, yes. Whoa. Korean man who was amazing, great teacher um, and really fun and uh, animated. He back when he had been in South Korea he had been a uh, an explosives like uh, person in the army or something so it was like crazy like he would just drop in these stories but one of the <laughs> the bits that he would do all the time is about how in 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 South Korea that like he was raised eating dogs and would i think he really just did it to like freak us out like you know tame ohio kids but i i we were all like oh my god like that's crazy and like he would always talk about wanting to catch one of the other teacher's dog this guy mr (laughs) o'neill his dog would run around the school and so he's like oh i'm gonna catch him i'm gonna eat him that's really funny yeah he was so funny and so uh so we had an idea for one of these coffee house posters because we would make all these promo posters and put them around the school to say like for every person who doesn't come to coffee house we we will find 
Dr. Colon one dog to eat. <laughs> and so we, being very sheltered Ohio people, didn't realize that that's a stereotype. Right. So a different, uh, a visiting teacher basically came to the school and saw that and was like, that is racist. <laughs> and so we got pulled out of classes. Um, and like I said, we had asked his permission to put this up. Mm-hmm. And we didn't realize that. I mean, that was, I guess, on us to not realize it was racist. But they were like, do you know that, like, that's a slur? We're like, what? No. They're like, what about this slur and this slur and this slur? We're like, we've never heard any of these things. <laughs> like, you're teaching us racist things. So anyway, so we took it down and it, like, wasn't – but they basically they tried to make it into this whole thing where they talked to Dr. Colin. They're like, can you believe this? And he's like, yeah, I do eat dogs. Like, <laughs> that that's not about all Korean people. That's me. Yeah. Like, that that's a joke yeah. from our class. Everyone in the school knows that. And it turned into this big battle – Back and forth. There were a couple other issues. Like, luckily, that was the only racially insensitive one. Uh, but uh, he ended up coming to that show that month and doing stand-up. Like, I say stand-up, but it was basically just, like, talking about all of that stuff that he'd kind of, like, <laughs> given us snippets of in class and did, like, five or ten minutes of just, like, Dr. Colin, like, telling us about life. And it was... It was great. Like, everyone talked about it, and it was this big deal, and he was not asked back the following year. I don't know if it was because of that or just – it was clear that, like, he did not mesh well with the administration – but uh, that that was one of one of many clashes during my time. That That's was wild. Freshman year, I think. So wow. I really started things off well. <laughs> oh man, sounds like a cool guy. I feel bad for him. He was a great guy. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he's doing well. He, like I said, he was super accomplished, yeah. very funny, and a good teacher. I mean, I just think he uh, he was maybe a little looser than yeah. than the private school wanted him to be. Uh, what kind of like uh, comedy shows were you watching growing up? Uh, I mean, mostly SNL. Um, I honestly, I was, I, I didn't watch that much comedy, which I know is weird. Like so many people that I work with and have you know hung out with, they talk about watching The Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons because my mom thought it was too crass, but <laughs> SNL was fine. Um, and and I don't know, there was a lot of shows from the time. I mean, I watched a lot of like dumb sitcoms, but like home improvement and things like that. But like, I I never really got a lot of the like basic comedy nerd training Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people did. It wasn't until, um, you know, later in high school that friend Nicole turned me on to a lot of stand-up specials. So I started listening to like, you know, I I was obsessed with uh, Dress to Kill from Eddie Izzard and listening to a lot of, you know, David Cross's specials and, you know, a lot of those types of things, just listening to a lot of stand-up. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in high school, I went to go see Mitch Hedberg and Stephen Lynch oh, wow. um, in in his last tour. And I'm trying to think. I, I saw Eddie Izzard live, which was cool. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I didn't watch that much in terms of like I wasn't like, oh yeah, I was in on the state, and you know how some people are. I'm like, oh man, you are way cooler than me. <laughs> I was still like playing guitar and being like, maybe I'll be a punk musician. Like, no. <laughs> uh, where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to NYU, so oh, cool. right right around here. Yeah. We're in the village. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went to school for acting because then oh, I, cool. by the end of high school, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a serious actress. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, so I, I went to NYU, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I started going to the UCB. I took you know some improv classes while I was a student and was kind of toying around with like oh I kind of like comedy but like I should really just know how to do it all because you know I want to be a real actress and um 
just over the course of doing it, I took this theater studies course uh, that was basically like a comedy of New York class. And it was reading a lot of things about New York comedy, listening to like old Lenny Bruce and like just a lot of stuff that was very cool. And as part of the class at the end of it, you could do stand up. Um, they rented out um, Eastville Comedy Club and we could do a set, just a five minute set. And I was like, well, I'll try it. Okay. And a lot of people did it. Um, uh, Rachel Bloom was in that class and she did it. Um, And Miles Teller was also in the class and he did not do it. And I remember I'm like, if you're scared of comedy, like good luck making it as an actor. And within like (laughs) a year, he was cast in Rabbit Hole and was no longer at the school because he was famous. So I don't know how to predict things apparently. (laughs) But what was uh, Miles Teller like as a classmate? So quiet. I, yeah. I mean, I only had that one class with him and he never spoke. It, <laughs> I, it is so weird to me now seeing him and people are like, wow, he's so charismatic. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> I mean, that said, it was, like I said, a theater studies class. Right. And yeah, I'm sure he did not give a shit. Like, I think a lot of people took that class not because they liked comedy, but just because it was a, an easy class. Right, like, right. Yeah, let's just sit around and listen to stand ups from the 70s. Um, but yeah, but I did that show and it it was packed with all of our like friends. So it was the warmest crowd in the world. My jokes were awful, but it was the first time since I'd been doing theater in a while that I actually like got stage fright and felt that adrenaline rush. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I should do that again sometime. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I kind of just started doing it just a little bit here and there. If, if something would, you know, come up that I'm like, oh someone's doing a show yeah maybe i'll do stand up Mm -hmm. um and started kind of flirting with it that way and then doing more ucb stuff and kind of slowly experimenting with like oh i don't know i like comedy okay (laughs) this could be a thing so so were you more uh into into stand-up than improv and sketch and stuff um oh boy (laughs) Uh, hard to say i mean i started stand-up i don't know i it was kind of I wasn't fully in the world of either. You mm-hmm. know, I was taking some improv classes and I was like, oh, and d- dabbling with a show every couple months. Like, you know, not yeah. not really doing it. And kind of was like, oh, well, one will help me with the other. And it was kind of just a fun hobby to be doing because I still wanted to be an actor. But at that point then, once I graduated, I was working as a blogger for for this like entertainment website and thought maybe I wanted to do advertising because I like to write and I was like well I'm getting paid to be a writer so maybe there's something there basically I graduated and was like I just don't want to be a waitress because I'd been a waitress (laughs) in Ohio and I was like truly I will do anything I don't want to be a waitress I don't want to be a nanny that's what all of my friends are doing while they're auditioning so if I can try to find any alternate path of like yeah being being a writing being a writer being a uh, an advertising person who comes up with commercials and or, or truly anything for a while. I was like, maybe graphic design. I was very open. <laughs> so, but during this entire time that you're still doing uh, comedy stuff. Yeah, kind of as a fun thing to be doing, a fun mm-hmm. hobby. Um, in, in high school, I also had a web comic that oh, I wrote cool. um, with first that girl, Nicole, and then later with another friend, John, who's uh, now we're my boyfriend. Um, and so... It, it kind of was just a thing that, like, I always liked to do. I always liked to make comedy videos. I always was doing, you know, this comic. I was always, you know, trying to be funny and doing, like, you know, infographics then for this blog, this entertainment blog. Like, mm-hmm. basically just doing whatever I could just kind of as a hobby and for fun. But uh, 
it I didn't really think of it as a career for a long time until um, right around I, I'm a very type A person which is probably surprising because I feel like I give off a mess like I'm in the middle of a rom-com where I'm just like oh no where did I put my glasses <laughs> um, but uh, I I make a lot of lists and I'm like really into goals um, and so uh, in 2012 when I was like I graduated in 2010 and after that for the next two years I kind of was taking classes at UCB and doing stuff but also really was like oh maybe I'll try advertising that'll be my thing and doing that and then around the end of the year in 2012 I was like well this is kind of silly because like I might as well shoot for comedy like comedy I actually really like and I've been doing it as a hobby so what if I just like make a big push and try to do that and then I can keep doing advertising as kind of a fallback. Like, I'm already in that now. So let me try that. And so my goal, I made a bunch of goals for for New Year's resolutions of like, oh, I'm going to do this many shows. I'm going to film something I make. Just like, basically, and seeing a lot of friends um, who got success. Yeah, I say success, like got an agent. But like, you know, at the time I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Or, you know, even got one of my friends got hired to college humor and things like that. They were like, oh my God. Um, and the way they did it was they made a ton of stuff. They just threw shit out there at the, in the, at the internet, the wall of the internet and saw what stuck. And it was like, if they made 10 videos and nine of them were not great, but one of them like got a write up like that it didn't matter all that mattered was that one good one and so I when I made that resolution I was like all right I'm just gonna start making stuff and doing shows and just doing whatever I can so uh, a friend of mine um who who's a really funny character comedian Matt Garing, he was hosting a show at the pit and was like hey it's a show for characters and impressions like do you do that and I was like well I've never done either of those things but like sure why not I'm doing everything this year so yeah so he's like okay you need you know three characters and one impression and so I was like okay so I worked on it and I decided that I should do Lena Dunham because there aren't many chubby female celebrities in the world um so I was like okay uh and I was uh I I was a little younger so I was like oh I kind of look like her I could maybe do that so I just spent like a week learning that impression and then did it at the show and it went well so I was like how what the hell I'll just film it and put it online like why not so I rented a camera for 200 bucks and just did it and put it online and it went kind of viral it got half a million views and it got a ton of press and I got a bunch of calls from agents and managers and people wanting to work with me and so suddenly I realized like oh I could actually do this so I kind of thought well, the opportunities there, I'd already had a web series that I had written, but I hadn't done anything with yet, but like, and was doing all these shows. So, you know, from their perspective, it looked like I was a very legitimate person who like <laughs> had been working on things for more than, you know, three months, very intensely. Um, and so, you know, I signed with an agent and just uh, really kind of went for it for real. From that point on, which I I was very fortunate in that that happened uh, the first week of March right after, you know, so it was Uh like a quick turnaround. But then, um, yeah, from there was it was nice because, um, you know, I started going out on auditions, not booking things, but still like getting to do that, see that side of it, still supporting myself doing freelance advertising and working on my own stuff. And it, it took me a long time of figuring out like, okay, 
do I want to be doing more stand-up? Should I be throwing myself into improv? I mean, it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. I still struggle with it sometimes of being like, am I doing the wrong thing? Should I be focusing my efforts on X instead of Y? Um, but I've kind of just let uh, opportunities as they come to me, I respond. So when my I was signed with UTA across the board, and so the writing agent there was like, hey, don't do anything with this web series. It's not good enough. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and was like, hey, you should write a pilot. So I was like, cool, I've never done that, but I will. And was like, you should, do you want to apply for late night shows? And at that point, I had never done that. I knew basically nothing about it. Um, but was like, sure, yeah, I will learn how to do that and I will do that. So I, uh, you know, did research online and talked to friends who had taken a uh, UCB elective with Josh Patton, who works at uh, Weekend Update. And they were like, yeah, the main thing we took from his class is just start putting your jokes on Twitter. Like, just try to write ten, at least 10 jokes a day and put them on Twitter. And so I started doing that and just kind of treating it like a class to try to get better at topical jokes and getting in the habit of writing jokes quickly. And uh, it, it truly helps. That's the thing. Anytime anyone wants to get better at monologue jokes, it's Twitter, especially then before they expanded, you know, the character count. Oh, right. Yeah. But it forces you to be concise and topical and find an angle that literally not, you know, anytime anything happens, you know, there are 10 people with the same joke right on your timeline. So you have to get a little bit creative but it has to be clear and it's nice because there's an instant feedback in terms of you know how how many likes it gets so it's it's a closer to stand-up or live performance in that way that you can actually test it mm -hmm. before you have to actually then write it for a packet mm -hmm. so i started doing that sorry i've been talking for uh, just rambling straight no no you're, you're great yeah this is going well <laughs> uh uh so with those topical jokes like how do you approach like writing a topical joke um, well, I, I mean, you, you just find, uh, find a story. I think, yeah. uh, it depends. I mean, for Twitter, it's just, you know, whatever you have a, a thought on. I mean, I think for a packet, when you're doing like a page of them, you want to make sure that you have a variety of topics. You know, I, uh, I did the late night writers workshop for NBC and then, uh, a little while later, like the next year or two, um, was a reader for it. Um, and read people's packets. And one thing that always um, was maybe not the best that I would see often is people, you know, they would submit a, a packet and all of their monologue jokes were political, Trump, blah, 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 which can be really great, but it, it doesn't show me as much about you as a writer. Unless, unless there's a very specific take in there that shows me about your voice of like, oh, this is just a political comedian who has a really specific take. If you're just doing things like to try to be like, oh, like The Tonight Show, you know, just to use a very like generic late night template, it is like, yeah, do one about like a weird local story. Do one about uh, a new study that comes out. Do one that do one about the president. Do one about a political thing that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. You know, those types of things to make sure you cover a lot of topics, keep it tight, make sure it could fit as a 140 character tweet for the most part. Um and yeah, I mean, don't rely on things. I mean, it's, again, Twitter's a good training ground. A lot of people would do jokes that relied on key images the way like, you know, 
weekend update often it's the image is the punchline oh, right, yeah. which doesn't work as well for a packet because you can't control the timing of how it comes up and if you say oh it's a mock-up to look like that it's like well i don't see that mock-up yeah. so don't write that <laughs> like you know just be able to do it with your words and uh you know it's also good practice just because you need to be writing things that are actually happening now so you know there are every now and then you can find a good evergreen joke to slip in, but for the most part, you have to just do fresh jokes all mm-hmm. the time. I had a friend who, uh, for a packet, did like a mark, like a did an image mm-hmm. that he's like, look at this image for this joke, and he didn't get the job. And I, I feel like that's a risky move to do that. It is. I mean, <laughs> here's the thing: if you're like so sure that it's like the best payoff. My, what we were taught at the late night writers workshop kind of, and kind of what I've really embraced it is the idea that you get one. Like if Mm. you want to go dirty, like basically no late night shows go dirty. But if you have a great, great, great dirty joke, okay, fine. You get one. If you have a pun, yeah, they don't do a lot of puns, but fine. You get one. Like, you know what I mean? If you fight for something and it's, it's your baby, fine. But like, it's often then I find people like once that door is open, then they're like, all right, I guess I'll do images right. for all of them. And it's like, no, no, yeah. you get one of those. <laughs> uh, how does the late night workshop like work? So I, I know you, you send in the packet. Yeah. And then uh, there's like a second round of like interviews. I don't know. You, yes. you, you, sh- you yeah. should talk about it. I don't yeah. Know. So uh, that was something that that same year um, in 2013, they started the program and I just kind of, I just had dived into comedy and so uh, they did their first, you know, session. They were looking for packets in October, and I put together a packet. It's, I think, two sketches, two a, a page or two of monologue jokes, and a page or two of desk bits. So, like, a very standard, you know, sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I – it was the first packet I'd ever done, and I – struggled a lot and so i was like you know what i'm gonna work really hard so that next time this comes around i am more prepared and then the next time it came around was january right after because they changed the timing of it oh wow but because between october and january i was like just focused on becoming great at this um then i did a packet that i felt much better about and so you do that for the first round and it's all blind and then uh, they, they do interviews. And you have to also write like a little essay because the focus on it is diversity, finding different types of voices. Um, and so, you know, you basically just talk about why your voice is n- not seen as much, like what experiences you bring to the table that would make a writer's room unique. Um, and then I-, I was very fortunate in that they they chose me. And it's... A very fun thing it's like a week long in new york at 30 rock and you just uh you kind of have little workshops with various you know teachers who are working um the guy we had had worked for um craig ferguson for several years and now writes for uh he just wrote for the president show and oh john reynolds john reynolds oh i uh, didn't know if you knew him for, uh former guest oh great yeah. yeah he was one he was like our main person and then you know we had other people come and give like little guest lectures like amber ruffin from uh uh seth Seth myers yes and uh some other people from nbc shows uh which was cool and it was just a really fun um it was like a, a great way to sharpen your skills and to really i found it really helpful in that it um gave me a lot of confidence it like you know i was very new to this 
And it really was like, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Like, these are good jokes. Like, tighten them even more. Just press them even more. You know, all of that stuff. So then after that, I felt confident to tell my agents, like, yeah, send me every packet you can possibly send me. I will do everything. I and just never turned down a packet Mm -hmm. and did them all. And, you know, you, you just, you do get better at it from, from doing it. It's Mm -hmm. the same type of thing where auditioning is very different from actually performing. Like packets are their own skill set and you get a lot better at them. So over the course of that year, it sort of went from like, okay, I'm not hearing much to like, oh, I heard I actually was, you know, someone they were considering, but it didn't pan out to an interview. And then, oh, I actually got an interview for a show. And, oh, but I don't have enough experience. And then finally, you know, got hired on a a tiny show that I see you have written in your notes, Lie Detectors, (laughs) which was uh, very, very small, just a game show network show. But I think it's helpful when you're starting out um, because I had an interview for a bigger show and that was a new show and basically the feedback I got because I thought the interview went great I was like I got the job and then my agents were like yeah they really liked you but ultimately they they just they felt like because it's a new show they really couldn't take a chance on someone who's so green you know someone who hasn't worked on tv before and so at that point I was like okay I need to not have that ever be the case again (laughs) like I need to just get any experience so that the next time I have an opportunity like this, I can say, yes, I have been in a writer's room. Yes, I know how this works. And um, so so lie detectors was great because it was such a off the radar thing <laughs> that, um, you know, they didn't care. Um, and so I, I did that and met great people. I mean, it was a really tiny little offshoot, but I uh, thing I've always heard that I find very, very true is that work begets work. Mm. So if you get any job, it will probably lead you to the next job. Because mm. um, the people on that, like one of the writers is now one of the writers on The Good Place. One of the writers who is on that has written on a, a ton of stuff, you know, Comedy Knockout and a bunch of other things. One of them, then this guy, uh, right after that ended, got hired as the head writer of At Midnight. And mm. so... I had just done a packet for At Midnight, and then I heard Joe Randazzo um, got the job as head writer. And so I sent him an email and was like, hey, I just applied for this. You just got this job. Like, should I, like, do a new packet? Or is there any insight you can give me? And he's like, yeah, those packets I don't think were actually read because, you know, (laughs) they were holding off until they found a head writer. So why don't you refresh your packet and make sure it's all topical and send it to me in a day or two and I'll make sure it actually gets read. Like we're going to, we're doing a new packet round, so I'll pass it along. Mm -hmm. And I was like, thank you. And so things like that I think are so helpful because suddenly you're one of the packets that is fresh and you're, you know, for a fact that it's going to get read. So instead of a pool of 200, you're in a pool of, 50 or 20 Mm -hmm. or whatever so that and i didn't even interview for that because he had just worked with me so when they when my packet was flagged as one of the ones that the producers liked he just went like yeah that's my friend she's really good i just worked with her and just i immediately got it so it was so 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 wonderful um and and a great experience so i moved to la for that job and uh yeah i mean you know uh, you've interviewed a lot of people uh, who okay. were also writers on that, Emmy Blotnick and Nick Weiger. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it truly has so many 
great powerhouse writers who were in and out, and it was kind of a great show in that it was pretty flexible. One of our writers, who's now at Kimmel, uh, Jesse Joyce, is a, a big stand-up, and so every weekend would leave to like go to Tallahassee and you know do do some crazy show where he was headlining. But uh, it was flexible enough that it could let you do those things. Mm-hmm. So I think that made it a very big draw for a lot of different types of writers. And I was a you know, still pretty new writer. So I was just like, Oh my God, thank you. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so when you, when you do a packet and like you say, like, uh, you mentioned that he gave you like a, like a day or two to refresh your jokes. Yeah. How do you handle, cause I know like a lot of packets come in like on Monday and then you need them by Thursday. You need to like turn in a packet. Yeah. How do you handle that? Like small gap of time? Uh, well, you just do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not great, especially when you are working another job. Um, yeah, I, I am lucky because like I said, my boyfriend, John, he was my, uh, he wrote that comic with me. And so I trust him comedically. So I could always bounce ideas off of him and, you know, send him a joke and be like, Hey, does this make sense? Um, and I feel like a lot of people, uh, sometimes I wonder if people are really doing that. Like things that people should always be doing is read your jokes out loud because sometimes mm. you think they make sense and then you read the sentence and you're like, oh, no, that's not English. Right. Um, or even just for like errors. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so important. Read it out loud. And two, like find someone to send it to, to read it. Because so often you'll think that everyone knows this one reference from a Power Rangers episode from the 80s. And then you'll send it to someone and they're like, what are you talking about? And you're like, <laughs> oh, right, just because I know a thing doesn't mean other people know a thing. And you can do that. And that was always very helpful for packets of, like, crank it out. I, I think it, it, the best thing is quantity over quality. Like, if if you need a page of jokes, write four pages of jokes mm-hmm. and then cut it down to the best page of it. Um, because it, it, it truly you'll think, you'll be like, oh, well, I think that's pretty good. And, like, half of them you'll turn – if you show it to someone – you know, they'd be like, well, I actually, I didn't really get that. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's really helpful in terms of cranking it out. Um, also just, I, this is something that I feel like I see sometimes with younger writers and I was a younger writer, but, uh, that thing of like, well, I don't know. It's just such a tight turnaround, like a couple days. Like, I don't think I'm going to do this one. It's like, if you get hired, you're, I mean, like at the job I have now, and not you have about you in my experience, you have one hour to write anywhere from one to seven pages of comedy, and it's like, if you, you should be able to do that, <laughs> like yeah. you know what I mean. And if you can't, that's fine. But then keep practicing and and view it as a a challenge. You know, it's kind of like a free class. Every packet is an opportunity to try to do the job. And mm-hmm. if you find yourself really struggling, like. That's a great thing to learn before you get the job so right. that you can keep learning and keep working on it. Um, so that's that's always something. And similarly, that's kind of how I feel as well. I've, I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, this show isn't like really my voice. So like, I don't know. It's like, that's a great opportunity to try writing in someone else's voice. Yeah. And like, even if it's a show that you're not sure you would even take, you know, there's a particular show that myself, I would not want to work on and a couple friends have uh passed it and i i respect it because for political reasons they're like fuck that show 
But I also kind of think like, well, you could still do the packet. Like you could, yeah. you never know because also if you impress someone in that room, I got um, that particular show. I'm not going to say what show it is, but uh, I did a packet that I. I did not necessarily want to get the job. I probably would have taken it because I was very young and hungry, but I was like, ah, I wouldn't ideally like to be there. But I did the packet. And then one of the guys at the show, they didn't end up hiring me or anyone, but he then recommended me for some other thing. And so I, I got another packet out of it, basically, mm. which is cool because it was just like, oh, yeah, I got this uh, one thing. It seemed like it would be, she had a lot of, like, theater jokes. It seemed like she'd be right for this theater thing. So it was like, I, you know, you never know. Work begets work, both in terms of jobs and also the work you put out there. The more chances you have to try to meet someone or impress someone or just sharpen your own skills, I think, like, I don't know. You can't you can't afford to not try. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you're very much a person who takes every opportunity. Which you I think should you have try. to be. Yeah. yeah, I mean, here's the thing, and like everyone has limitations. Like I know I am not as good at the networking side. Like I have friends who go to so many like awesome events and they meet people and they're like, "Oh yeah, I ended up getting this job because I met this guy at this party a year ago <laughs> and then I went out to a bar with his friend and then I met it's like that's incredible. That's amazing. That that's like a superpower." <laughs> but I am not always the best at that. Um, and so I feel like you need to know your strengths and your weaknesses. So like, if you're a great networker, like so much of it is who, you know, like, I mean, me knowing Joe helped get me in the door there, but I would never have met Joe at a party. Like the only way I am going to meet people is basically by hustling because I, I'm, I don't have that superpower. So my, my superpower is just like, I will do every, I will do all the packets. I will, I don't care if it's due at midnight. I'll do all of them. Uh, like, cause that's, that's the only thing I feel like I can do. Mm-hmm. How many packets would you say you've like done? Maybe just, yeah. How many times do you say do you think you've done? In the- um, I, I used to keep track. Like I said, I, I am very list oriented. Uh-huh. So if I grabbed my phone, I probably have the Google doc. Um, <laughs> I, cause I used to keep track of like, uh, <laughs> I have a, uh, a Google Doc for several years in a row called Successes Versus Failures. And I would just uh, keep track of like every audition, every, Whoa. like, yeah, every packet I did. Um, I would guess I've probably done mm, 30 packets or so. And I've probably gotten five interviews and, you know, two jobs so like it's a pretty decent yeah it's pretty ratio, good yeah. but it is i would say almost all of those 30 like you know almost, the first year i did it i mean if i started in yeah march or something from that i mean and even then i didn't that's when i got my agent but i, I would say it was about a full year of or maybe eight months nine months something like that of doing packets like regularly uh, every couple of weeks and did not even get an interview mm-hmm. just because it's like, it feels very steep. Whereas now I feel like that I've done them a lot, you know, basically the last, you know, if I've done 10 packets in the last year or so, I've probably gotten some sort of interview or some sort of thing off of them, maybe like seven or eight of them. So it's like the, their percentage shoots through the roof after you've, gotten better at it and also after you're working because i'm sure also it it is partly like your agents you know being like because again let's say they get 200 packets like 
it's tough to read all 200. I mean, they probably will glance at all 200, but if they can say like, hey, look, this person worked on this show, they worked on this show, like set it aside. If you can have any reason for them to flag yours, it helps so, so, so much. And that's partly who you know, it's partly your resume, it's partly just like having a different voice or having something different. Uh, I feel like that's something good that's happening right now is people are like, yeah, actually, let's flag this one, you know, if, or they do it blind, in which case it is just like, well, good luck. Hope you wrote something yeah. good. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, you mentioned being very list oriented and very goal oriented. Yeah. Uh, when you're like in between jobs and you're working on like different writing stuff, does that like help you organize your work? Um, I am very fortunate, but it's also very draining. Um, I have not had any time off of work huh. since... Uh, uh, since admin, well, since really lie detectors, I had a week, I think, between that or maybe two weeks before I got at midnight, and then I have not not had a job since. Wow, um, which is great, but also very um tiring because I I really would love to write more of my own stuff and and you know do some of that. I do keep I I keep yearly goals. Um. So, uh, yeah, I, last year, I think my goal was to write three pilots and I did that, but it's a type of thing where like, I, I don't then like go pitch them. I don't really mm-hmm. go back to them. Like not all three of them are good. Like I, again, I think in, in, I try to do the quantity over quality approach and think that, uh, probably most of, if you write 10 pilots, you know, the first couple are just practice. So like, but, and I know that's also not true for everyone. I've had friends who they, they're like, yeah, I guess I'll write a pilot now. And then they sell it and it's an amazing thing right away. So that's just, I guess me, I, I really feel like I have to grind things. I'm like a Hermione Granger of comedy. Like I just need homework. It's real cool and chill. Uh, no, but that's, that's cause you're, you're working all last year and you, and you managed to still have three pilots. That's like pretty incredible that you've like this whole, cause you know, you're doing, like, these late-night shows that are, have crazy, like, long hours. Well, At Midnight was a little bit more flexible. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, for that, I find uh, writing groups. Like, I have, for, you know, I don't have one now, but back in L.A. and before that in New York, just a weekly writing group that is, you know, two to three hours every week. You meet and you have to have pages or an outline or something to share. And because I will not do it unless I have homework. So if I, I just, you know get homework for myself um (laughs) yeah i i find that very very helpful um but that's where i'm talking about that i guess nagging questions still come into mind of i did all that last year but i i probably performed stand-up like five times total last year so that those are the trade-offs that i never know you know what what should you really be focusing on Mm -hmm. because I do feel like my writing has gotten much, much better, but it, if someone, you know, were like, Hey, we, we want you to submit a tape tomorrow. I'd be like, Oh boy. (laughs) Oh no, no, I'm not ready for that opportunity. (laughs) So it's, it's just hard to be ready for every opportunity. And so I think, I mean, yeah, the more you can just do what excites you and the more you can do, you know, just make goals and be trying to do something. I think you can never know that it's the right thing, but as long as you are doing as long as you're making stuff and and challenging yourself i feel like ah well if it was the wrong thing that's all right at least Mm -hmm. you're getting better 
Uh, so you're writing jokes on Twitter. You're doing the late night workshop. You did jokes on lie detectors. Mm-hmm. What was it like to go to at midnight with all that experience? Like, like how much did it help? Um, or- it, it was, I mean, at midnight, the first two months I was not very good at my job. I mean, it was like, I give them a lot of credit. I give Joe a lot of credit in that they were very supportive and they really wanted me to do well. I was the youngest writer they had. I was one of two women. It was very like, I think they really were like, it's okay. Keep going. <laughs> and, uh, I worked very hard in that. I, I, I knew I was the least funny person in the room when I started. So it was like, cool. I'm the worst here. So I will make sure to be turning in the most pitches, the most games, the most, like I will do if everyone else puts in two jokes in, you know, comedian material though, like two jokes for each prompt, I will put in 10. Like, I will make sure that my output is so much so that, again, it's the quantity thing in that, like, yeah, I would write 10 jokes and maybe some of them weren't the funniest, but I would find, I found quickly that my stuff ended up getting on the air a lot just because there was so much to choose from. And after you do that, I mean, it took me a month or two, like I said, but by the end of the first two months, I was then finally, like, up to speed and... Uh, could actually do a better job the first time, you know, and I didn't necessarily need to write 10 jokes because like, okay, now after doing that for a month or two, I know the voice of the show more. So now I know, you know, I I can kind of tell which jokes are actually going to work rather than just being like, I don't know, and panicking and throwing out a million. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, it was definitely a big learning curve. And I think that's, I hope, I think it's true with most people. I mean, I obviously there are always like wonderkins who like their first job, they just knock it out of the park. But I feel like it's definitely, um, it, it just takes practice and it is, you know, to be in the stress of a real job. And so we would have an hour where you go and you write your piece and then Chris Hardwick, the host would come in and with all the executive producers and everything would be in a big room and we'd kind of pitch him your piece and then just like basically read it to him and like perform it and it either got laughs or it didn't and he would riff a little and you'd riff with him and like it it very much felt like all right you're up to bat (laughs) wow and in it that was very uh overwhelming for me at first but it teaches you how to get comfortable and that's something that then I went from that to Mad TV, which was a whole separate thing. But then I went back to At Midnight. And then now I'm on The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. And that was something that I was very nervous about as I was going to this show. Because I was like, oh boy, is it going to be that learning curve again? Where the first month I'm just terrible? Uh, And it wasn't. And I, I went in and I was like, oh no, I'm actually really comfortable in the room. And there were some people, there are some people who are, are doing great. I don't mean to say anything else they're they're amazing but like other writers who maybe if it's their first job you could tell the first week or two you know we're a little bit like "Ah, i don't know when to talk i don't know Ah," and it's like oh yeah i was that there it's just anytime you're in this new situation you want to do a good job and you don't know how much talking is the right amount you don't know how to necessarily pitch your idea and i feel like once you're in a room for a while you, you just you gain those skills and that's why i think that like people who have been doing it for years and years and years. I mean, I, who I've worked with on, you know, various shows, like it feels like they just like it, they don't even have to think about it. Comedy just oozes out of them because 
they've just been around it so long that it's it's a reflex it's a muscle i think especially in late night um jokes are like more muscular it's just like you you know it's it's very like it's just technical it's just doing mm-hmm. reps whereas i feel like with things like sketch and definitely with narrative shows it can be a little bit more like musical and you really can play with the format not that you can't in late night obviously you can get weird and really play with the format but in terms of like if you just want to write a monologue joke like it's it's kind of like just doing a sit up like you just you just got to work those muscles and then eventually like you you can do sit ups now i don't know <laughs> and i feel like a show like at midnight specifically where there's just so many jokes yes it truly is a joke factory that, yeah and so you just have to be like cranking them out yes speed is huge and just it, yeah and and then you know it definitely because different you know performers would come in and we'd pair up writers with performers you very quickly learn how to pitch for different people's voices you know how to work with people i think at midnight was a an, an incredible training ground for someone who wants to be in comedy um i hope i hope it comes back and uh, that other people get the chance to uh to to do that and you were on the staff uh right when it ended right yes what what was that like? Like being like doing the last like show. Uh, it was it was the coolest show in, because there were there were like forty guests, thirty something I, that came back. You know, all so many of all our all stars um, uh, were there, and it, it just felt it was just like a party the whole night. Everyone was like dressed to the nines. Um, we had we turned our giant green room that also had like you know a snack and crafty all of that backstage into this giant party space with um, you know champagne and all the comics just hanging out a photo booth you know all of these things so it just felt and then you know people would come and grab you when your bit was about to happen so it was just this amazing energy and just uh, very humbling as a younger comedian you know coming up in the world to just be like looking around and hanging out with Weird Al and Tom Lennon's over there and PFT is toasting Paul Shear and, <laughs> you know, Garfunkel and Oates are giggling about something. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Um, so that was that was an awesome night. I'm really, really grateful that I got to be there at the end um, because, yeah, it, it just it worked out really well with scheduling that, you know, I was able to be there for a while. Then I left. Then I came back, finished out at midnight and then the next week started the opposition. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot, but right. very good. Uh, and you were on the, the rebooted mad TV. Yes. Well, yeah. How'd you get the, that gig? So that was, um, I, I was in LA writing on it at midnight and I'd heard, uh, from a friend that they had done a showcase for the reboot of mad TV. And my friend was a stand up, and I was kind of bummed cause I was like, wow, I know I'm writing on, on at midnight, but characters, after that one character, you know, like after the Lena Dunham thing went viral, I just kind of really leaned into characters for a while. Um, that's how I ended up doing JFL, um, just for laughs, in 2014 is like, again, my thing is like, whatever kind of, whatever opportunities come to me, I'm just like, all right, I guess that's my thing now. Um, because I, I, which I think has worked out very well of whatever people say like, hey, you should do that. Like, all right, sure. <laughs> um, so I had done characters. So I, I emailed my agents and was like hey is there any way i could like get seen for this because i have i have characters and impressions just ready to go i you know i auditioned for snl the year before and they passed which you know so at that point it kind of feels like well 
there's no reason to keep doing characters like because <laughs> they're kind of the only show that does it. Right. So at that point, when I found out the like, oh, Mad TV is coming back, I was like, oh, there might be a second show that can actually use this skill set I've developed. So I I asked them if there's any way to get seen, and they uh they basically said that the casting directors was they did one last little uh thing over like mother's day or easter or something like that where the casting director fabulous woman julie ashton um basically spent her the entire holiday weekend just like she just wanted to do one more push so they sent her my snl tape from like a year or two before and was just like hey this is this girl this is her old tape but like she's she's good is there any way you can see her and she's like yeah tomorrow like you got to come in tomorrow have her do this five minute set and so that's a case where I just happened to luckily be very prepared in that I already had a really tight five minute set of characters and impressions and the studio because I I couldn't go for auditions while I was out at midnight but the studio was on the same block wow it was like just across the street uh which never happens in LA and just was really fortuitous so I just during lunch just was like great set set the meeting tomorrow during lunch and I just popped over and it was a huge room of like 12 producers which is very rare but uh it was great because that it made it feel like it was a real show so I was just like great I'm just gonna do my set which I feel good about I've done it a million times and go back to work so I just like popped in did it for five minutes and then left and kept on with my day and So it it worked out really well. And then they had, uh, it was a really long process because they really wanted to find the right company, you know, of uh, of eight of us since they were assembling a whole new cast instead of just plugging someone new in. So they did a ton. I think there were four or five auditions for that where it it would be, you know, like you'd you'd memorize, you would still keep doing characters. um, But then they would also say, here are, six scenes we want you to prepare and then you'd come in and they say okay we're you're only going to do four of those six scenes and we want you to do it with that person we need to do this one with this group and basically just testing chemistry hmm. and seeing how seeing how things went and i felt like um one of the things i did for that which uh doesn't always work well for auditions but i did feel like it was a good thing here was i because i'm also a writer i was like i'm just going to add jokes i'm going to add jokes to these Mm. scenes i'm going to you know add make big character choices like anything to really make this my own and i felt like it really helped it helped with that case i've also i did that once in a in a an acting audition where i'm like i'm just gonna like add my own stuff to it and they stopped me and they're like can you please just stick to the script and i was like (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. Oh my god! <laughs> so it really can backfire, but I think that was probably uh, maybe maybe don't do it for sitcoms, but definitely uh, for something like this where it's all about just like bringing a character to a scene. I think yeah, like the more you can just do a big swing. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and that was um, we did eight episodes. It took about three months, maybe four months. Um, it was actually on the same lot as At Midnight, so. I just uh, was there the whole time, and it was a really cool experience, um, kind of a, a weird experience to go from being one of the writers on a show to then a performer, because we were not writer-performers, um, which is different from you know SNL. Um, so we could kind we could 
there were a couple things of like the characters that we already came with that we auditioned with and those got we could have input on but a lot of it was more um uh i i guess collaborative in a very different way than i uh was used to or expected and so um it was it was just a really cool but different uh experience and i definitely learned a lot as to be like you are just talent right you write what's written so would you work with like writers on sketches like would you like would you guys talk to each other about like well this is what i would kind of want to do like okay i got that yeah yeah so i mean it was a mix of they would come to us you know they would be like hey i had an idea for something i thought you could be good for it's this sketch about blah 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 and you'd be like oh yeah yeah oh oh what about this um and we also you know would come to them a lot to try to pitch because i think we all really just wanted stuff to get on the air and so um you know i definitely would email out pitches a lot and uh you know just just approach people and be like hey uh this is this idea i had i thought you might have a good take on it is this anything you'd be interested in and then they'd kind of go off and be like they'd go off and write it and then the next time you'd really see it would be at a table read um which which was very cool. I mean, it was it's neat to see things interpreted or like one of the characters I did, um, they rewrote kind of just a whole different game for. Um, but it was still I felt like it had the same tone. It was just like a, a different premise. So it was just a cool thing to see like, oh, this is a, a very different take that I would have never done on on the same character. Um, so yeah, so I mean it was it was very cool. I loved the cast. I love the writers. I mean, it's a lot of great people. Um, I feel like it's a little bit tough in that we were maybe uh, didn't didn't quite figure out what the voice was and who the show was primarily for. Um, I think that's tough when you only have eight episodes and it is kind of like this is a limited series summer run. You have you have two months go. Um but I do feel like, uh, I don't know, there's there's always talk about, oh, maybe it'll come back again. Maybe this will happen. And I hope it does. I mean, I would love to do more and, you know, have another chance to, to keep working on it. Because I mm-hmm. felt like oh, everybody involved was really great. It was just kind of, uh, you know, you, you need to figure out what, what a thing is. Mm. How was how acting uh, in sketch on television different from the stage? Um... Well, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, usually you, obviously you want to be not quite as big, but I guess it depends on the stage production. It also depends. Mad TV is very big. It's very broad. I mean, that's something that I think is very fun. Um, also, Mad TV, we tape in front of an audience. I mean, I guess, you know, SNL does that too, but they're live. So because we're not live, we wouldn't have like cue cards or anything. It's just memorized and it's just like we're putting it up like a real scene. And how we did it is we would do it once exactly as it was written. And then we would do it again right after the same exact sketch for the audience. But this time we would all just like improvise and kind of get get loose with it. And uh, so in that way, it was very very similar to just doing a show at you know ucb or somewhere like that i mean we had uh lyric lewis who was in it was from the groundlings main stage company i mean it was like a lot of different people from other performing uh theaters and i feel like it there's a reason that they chose those people just because it was very similar Mm -hmm. and and did you 
I guess learn anything different about sketch from like being like in a television show? Um, uh, I mean, I definitely, I feel like there were a lot of things that, oh boy, uh, I, I guess don't, don't do sketches that the whole point is like, maybe this will go viral. Like, I feel like uh, okay. that is a, a case of maybe sometimes the show not quite knowing who it's for. Um, I, I do think that like some of our best sketches were the ones that they didn't have a celebrity impression. They weren't a pop culture reference. They were just a funny premise. They were just a funny character, an original take on something that got a little weird and was fun. And I felt like um, if we had another go of it, I would definitely hope that we would do more of that and less just, you know, celebrity impressions and parody shows and that, which are also super fun, but I feel like if you do too much of that, it just becomes kind of a silly spoof and you lose the heart of something original. Mm. Uh, so now you currently work at The Opposition. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, so that was a totally blind packet, um, which I, at the time, was kind of like, oh no, just because I, I knew some of the people involved. And so uh, I'd interviewed with Stu Miller, who's one of the executive producers on a for a show before that, um, just kind of got feedback um, on a packet. And then um, I'd worked with Jordan when he came to At Midnight. I wrote with him. And then I just I had also known him through UCB, Laura Gray, one of our citizen journalists. Uh, uh, my show was actually paired with her show at UCB. Um, so I knew her a little bit. So it was, I knew a lot of the people, but then they said it was totally blind. So just good luck. So uh, I did the packet. And then how they, they do it like the Daily Show, where after you do your initial packet, if you make it to the next round, what they do is they have you choose a day, Friday or Saturday, and then they give you... 24 hours they email it to you at 9 p.m and it's due the next morning at 9 a.m and or not sorry i say 9 p.m to 9 a.m to 9 a.m okay so sorry 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 sorry. i said 24 hours but then i misspoke i was thinking 9 p.m to 9 a.m that's insane but honestly that would make sense it would have it should be 9 a.m to 9 p.m but they give you a full day yeah but it is to then you basically do another whole packet but this time they just make sure that you can crank it out in a day right yeah just because you know for a topical political show you really have to be able to do it and especially um when we started the show we were doing act one was all one piece um which we've moved away a little bit from now we try to cover maybe two or three stories in act one so they're a little bit shorter but at the start act one was just a seven minute piece so it really was like yeah you need to be able to crank out seven minutes go um and yeah i I, so i feel like that packet was a a really great uh chance to see if you, you see if you could do it i mean i feel like i I'm not the most interested in politics, but I love characters and Jordan plays a big character and uh, it's it's really joke dense, which I love about it. So it was a cool thing to say like, okay, I, I love jokes. I love character. Can I now put that through the filter of this political lens mm-hmm. and especially this conspiracy far right lens? Um, and and it, yeah, it was just really fun. And I, I've I've been really enjoying the show. I feel like the team on the show is... So great. I'm, I feel very lucky to work with all the people mm-hmm. I work with. And you were hired before the show started. Yes. Uh, so how, like, formed was everything when you got there? 
Well, I mean, pretty formed. I mean, the the show was uh, basically everyone in charge were transplants from The Daily Show, people who split off. So because of that, they had so much experience with like, here's how we do field pieces. Here's how we're going to structure it like The Daily Show. And that it's like, you know, a three act thing that has, you know, the third act is the interview. So we knew a lot of those basic things, but then it really was how do we make this feel different, different from The Daily Show and different from Colbert Report. Because another big right wing character, I mean, obviously we are following in that in those footsteps, but the goal is to try to blaze a new path, to start down that path and then really find our own way. Um, and I, I do think that we are doing that, um, but it is tough, I guess, to continually everything we do from graphics to the interview to, you know, every little thing, how we end the show, the bumpers, you know, all of those things. I feel like every different person on the team is responsible for like, okay, how do we make this ours and only ours? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it was pretty formed, but I feel like that's something that we're still playing with and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, experiment with. How, how much would you say uh, the show has changed? Like even in just the, the first couple months you guys have had? Um, a lot. I mean, it might not look like that because uh, if you're if you're not in the inner workings of the show, it kind of it's like, well, the big stuff's still the same. It's still those things I said. But there's been a lot of things like we have tried several different cold opens, just approaches, and I think that's very cool. And it's been very clear now that we've done so many shows. I think we're in the 60s now. That's not that many, but it it feels like a lot that you can tell like, oh, certain things work better than others. You know, we've tried Jordan up at the conspiracy board kind of doing like quick monologue jokes. We've tried Jordan at the desk delivering a monologue with like more conspiracy laden. We've tried, um, you know, just going into the show without a cold open. We've tried a lot of different things and... Um, I, I think it's cool that we're still experimenting. Act one was just for a while was just one big deep dive, and now it's more, um, you know, these little tiny stories, um, smaller things. Act two, we've you know done a mix of field pieces or chats with the citizen journalists. I mean, something that I think is cool that we've been doing now is um, trying to involve the citizen journalists in the act one little mini pieces, mm. and in some cases even do like little mini field elements like uh, you know our piece about the fake news awards we threw to a field piece where we just sent josh and aaron um two of our citizen journalists to the washington post building and they went and they put a red carpet and they interviewed people and gave out awards like you know to have that in the middle of a piece so that that was a little two minute element instead of being its own act so i don't know we're, we're experimenting it's it's all tiny stuff but to us, it feels uh, big because, you know, you obviously need to get a lot of okays before you before you mess right. with anything. Um, <clears throat> so we live right now in these insane times where each day there's, like, a crazy breaking news story. How do you handle, like, when it's, like, you know, 1 p.m. and, like, news breaks? Uh, that has happened a lot. Right. Um, especially, I would say it's not... It's easy when it's like Trump tweeted something crazy because 
that it's like, well, that happens every day and we can really decide like, okay, is this something we have to respond to today or is it something that we'd be better served by waiting a day and making sure we have a clear take on? And that's something that we've tried to balance. Like, you know, when when the Harvey Weinstein allegations came out, we, there was some discussion of like, okay, do we rush something out? And we kind of was like, no, maybe we mention it, but let's let's do let's make sure we have the right clearest take. Um, but then there are other things that have come out. Like, I mean, it, it really depends uh, also on the timing. Uh, the, I guess it was the Vegas shooting, um, happened like our second week of the show and it happened very, very close. It was like right before we were going to tape, maybe an hour or two before then. And so we, we knew we wanted to, you know, talk about it, but we were like, we feel like if we were to try to throw out an act and do a whole act on it. It, it, we, we just there's no room to to mess that up so that's one of the few cases where we've you know just had jordan give something a little bit more earnest and then the next day and for the rest of the week we were able to kind of like all right now let's really figure it out but i think that on the flip side there have been days uh where there have been other shootings because there have been so 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 many shootings it's been wild uh, where if a shooting happens the night before or even early that morning that we've been able to like, cool, we want to do a cold open on this. We want to address this. And I think that is something that we were able to do after the Texas shooting um, where I know it's crazy that there have yeah. been so many shootings uh, that, you know, to actually respond to it because it happened a little bit earlier. And so there, it, we didn't just have to be like, Oh my God, this is a tragedy. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I know. Crazy it's, times. It's really nuts. Um, yeah, it, things like that are just, they're very wild. We've had, uh, this week was very wild in that, you know, we, two of the Florida teens came on the show. And so we did a, like a special taping, you know, to have them there just so we could, you know, get them. And we kind of threw out what was going to be our act two, just so we could spend act two with them and really get to talk to them. And so it's, it's things it's, I'm glad our show is so flexible and can react and say like, okay, you know what, this is what everyone's talking about. This is the issue that we want to talk about. We have these guests throw out, clear our schedule. We want to mm-hmm. do this, you know, and to be able to, to do that. Is it, is it difficult to write about such, like, terrible things, to, like, write comedy about it? Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I, uh, I really do think that people, uh, people who are especially not in comedy are always like, oh, but Trump must be great right. fodder for you. It's like, oh, God, no, no. Because the, the dumb jokes, there's only like a handful his his hair his orange and those aren't even like fun to no, do no they're not fun it's like if you're if your aunt in michigan is making those jokes then those aren't the jokes we should be making and then also there's there's so much that is actually troubling that it is tough to uh it's tough to make jokes about it i mean it's like with all of these shootings for example or terrorist attacks uh you know there have been so many things some of the stuff with i mean just all these political things rollbacks of protections of various groups i mean it's like to have to then try to either to find the funny thing not not ever about them but to do that to do good satire you know you need to 
kind of amplify it and take it to its logical or to its point of absurdity. What is the nth degree of this argument? And I don't know. It, it is very tough. It is very tough to try to find an angle that can hit the right target on a day where you just want to not talk about right. it. <laughs> uh, how do you write for a show where like the, the like a political satire show where the POV is like a, like a Breitbart guy? I mean, it really is that of just taking things to their, their illogical conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it's like, I think there's the danger with things. And I feel like this is where you get uh, bad parody sites. I think The Onion is so great because it it goes from an insight and, you know, it really, uh, it, it doesn't just do the flip of things. I feel like I always see these like fake, uh, I, not always, but I have seen these fake satire sites that like they just say something that's like dumb or the, mm-hmm. the opposite. And I think that is the same for uh, our show. We need to always be very vigilant that, you know, we're not saying like, oh, well, most people love dogs. So we, so Jordan hates dogs and wants to kick them all. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not right. like a human insight. But if you can look at these people who are on the far right and it's like okay this is a this is based in fear this is based in a nostalgia for a time that they weren't even born for this is this is feeling like you were supposed to inherit this country and this status in life that you have not inherited and you're angry and you don't know who to blame like if you can take that and go from a real insight and a legitimate point of view because i mean that's something that i think everyone can relate to of like yeah, everyone has had moments where you're like, no, I was supposed to get the cake. And if you don't get the cake, you're like, ah, you know, it's that very human thing. Um, it's just, I think that if you can take those human things and then extend it out, uh, I think it, it works well. One piece that I worked on that I feel like was a good example of that was we did a piece about um, the new Aladdin live action movie has had a lot of different run-ins with whitewashing mm. accusations of like, them they literally had skin darkening tents where they were spray tanning various uh uh like stunt people uh and so our take instead of like the left the left hates whitewashing so we love whitewashing it's not about that it's that to have this thing about jordan feels left out they were gonna make this movie that didn't include him he wasn't going to be represented on screen. And how dare they? I mean, the kind of we had this thing of uh, like equality is just a, a, a what is it? Equality is just a, a, a simple way of saying I'm less special. <laughs> Things like that of those insights of like, you know, why, why can't I be in 100% of the movies instead of just 98% of them? <laughs> you know, those little things that then it's like, oh, suddenly you see it not just like, well, we're the opposite. It's like, oh, no, Jordan feels like the victim he thinks he's the hero in his own story and that is something that i think does speak to a larger issue in america right now where i think everyone even if they claim they don't so many people want to be the victim they want to feel like the underdog because at this point the underdog is the position of power i mean that's why i feel like the republicans are not to make get political but that's my whole job um you know of just like oh trump's this outsider and right. we're the we're, we're the underdogs it's like you control congress you control the presidency you control the judiciary like you're not the underdogs yeah. but still it's like yeah the mainstream media we're the little guys and so it's it's all these narratives and so it's kind of 
being able to parody that, I think, is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? Uh, I mean, I would love to, at some point, uh, I mean, eventually, I would love to have my own show. You know, probably not a late night show, but I would love to write something that I could be in. You know, like a like a Mindy Kaling or Alina yeah. Dunham or one of those gals. Nicole Byer, great show. Yes, yes. Ah, oh, so many great people. Rachel Bloom. I mean, there there's so many great uh, people who are writer performers, and that's what I would love to do. But uh, I don't know if uh, we can we can hope that'll be next, <laughs> but probably not. But I would love to do anything where I get to either continue performing or maybe write for narrative, which I've never done professionally, and I'd really love to try it. I don't know. Just keep keep experimenting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's the favorite segment okay. of everyone on the... In the... <laughs> uh, okay, so it's a courtroom, uh, and the jury, instead of finding a defendant guilty or not guilty, they find the defendant cool as hell. I like it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, immediately makes me think of uh, very different. I'm not uh-huh. saying it's the same, but Amy Schumer's court of public opinion. Oh, right. Um, yeah. uh, but like this uh, kind of court, this reputation court, or, or it also makes well, me Amy think Amy Schumer's of, is much better, but yeah. Well, no, but that's like a political <laughs> yeah. thing. It also makes me think of SNL's, uh, where, where the teacher is being, you know, on trial for hooking up with her student and everyone in the courtroom keeps just being like, nice. Oh, I haven't seen yeah, that one. Yeah, and high-fiving and yeah. being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The teacher's like, ah, I know. I mean, I did, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, dog, you did it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's fun. Anytime you can take something that should be serious and make it yeah. silly, it's, it's going to be a hit. And courtroom, courtroom sketches are so great because they have such an inherent – like structure, structure and, yeah. that everyone knows. So, uh, and the stakes are so high that that's great. Yeah, cool. All right, anything you want to plug? Um, my Twitter. Um, it's uh, at Chelsea underscore Davison. No second D, just Davison. Um, and and I mean, I've got a bunch of shows coming up, but uh, I don't know when this is going to air. So just check my Twitter, yeah. and you'll find out about my shows. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.